Welcome to the weekly teaching podcast of the chapel at Pasadena. Our desire is to reflect the grace and truth of Jesus Christ to Los Angeles and the world, and one way we do this is by sharing God's Word through our weekly sermons. Here is today's message. One of the unexpected hits of the 1990s, really all all my uh, fellow millennials, all right, I'm speaking to you right now. One of the unexpected hits of the 1990s uh, was a movie called uh, The Sixth Sense, directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Anyone see that movie? I saw that movie uh, in high school, and it absolutely terrified. I I went to it because of peer pressure, right? And I, I literally could not, I don't know why, but this movie had a huge impact on me. I could not sleep for like days after I watched this. I think my parents like were a little concerned. I distinctly remember my dad coming into my room, asking me why my light was still on like at 3 a.m. with a look of concern on his face. I was terrified when I saw this movie. Now, if you know the plot of this movie, okay, this is kind of, I'm going to give you some spoilers for a 25-year-old movie here. But in this movie, uh, Bruce Willis plays a child psychologist who's tasked with helping um, this little kid who's um, experiencing all these issues. And uh, it turns out this little kid can see dead people. And whenever he sees them, he's terrified, of course. Uh, And over the course of the movie, Bruce Willis and this kid come to realize that, like, the reason he's seeing these dead people is that he needs to sort of help them in some way. Or um, he's like a an aid for dead people or something like that. Uh, so he kind of comes to that realization, and then after that, he's no longer afraid of seeing the dead people anymore. Now, what made this movie so remarkable is what would become sort of a, a signature M. Night Shyamalan move, right? And that was the twist ending. Okay, so you watch this whole movie, you get to the very last scene, and then something happens in it that like sort of transforms your understanding of the entire movie, right? It turns out Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. He's one of the dead people that little kid has seen, right? Sorry if you were going to watch that movie. It's now <laughs> spoiled for you. But this movie was a hit, right? It was a smash, unexpected smash. Uh, and, of course, M. Night Shyamalan, he made another movie. And get this, in his second movie, there's also a twist ending. Then he made a third movie, and sure enough, there was a twist ending in the third movie. Okay, but by the time we got to like the fourth movie that M. Night Shyamalan made, uh, the twist ending was no longer a surprise because he did it every time. And the twists were getting like increasingly like silly and preposterous and, and less and less believable, right? Now, if, in order for there to be a really effective uh, like twist ending, it can't just come out of nowhere, right? You got to like be able to look back on the movie and see how the twist ending was set up. So it's got to both be expected and when you, when you see it, or sorry, it's got to be both unexpected and then when you see it, sort of inevitable seeming. Does that make sense? That's, that's what makes an effective twist ending. Now, why am I talking so much about endings? Well, we've come to the end of the book of Exodus, right? If you remember in the dim past, January 8th, 2023, we did Exodus 1. Now here in August, we're finally at the end of the book, the question is, how does Exodus end? What, what sort of ending does this book have? How is it like set up by what comes before it? I don't think it's like a, a M. Night Shyamalan style twist ending necessarily. Okay, but, but certainly 
Uh, what, what we want to see in this, in this narrative is that the ending, like, it, it comes from somewhere and it finishes something. It sort of brings to completion something that the book has been doing the whole time. And we've all seen, like, uh, pieces of media that um, did not uh, stick the landing when it came to the end, right? Uh, I'm going back to the, the elder millennial well here, but if you remember the show Lost had one of the most disappointing season finales of all time, right? It set up all this stuff and then it just kind of ended. All right. Five or six other examples of uh, endings I could talk about here. <laughs> but I won't. How does the book of Exodus end? And why does it end that way? That's sort of the question that we want to we wanna look at today. Now, first of all, what, what actually happens in this chapter? Um, well, if you remember the, the immediate context of where we're coming from, uh, from chapter 35 to 39, this tabernacle that God had given instructions on how to build is actually constructed and put together. Uh, all the different parts of it are, are made by these master craftsmen. Um, you know, actually, the, the construction of this building actually occupies a really significant portion of Exodus. If you remember the book of Exodus, if you just think about Exodus, you ask the average Christian, what's in the book of Exodus? They're going to say all sorts of things, right? But very few people will say, well, that's when they built the tabernacle. But actually, over a quarter of this book is just about building this building. Instructions about building it, and then the actual building of it. And then today, in our text, all these items that are built, it's kind of, you can imagine, like, they're all kind of brought to Moses. All the different individual parts of it. And then Moses puts it all together. It's actually assembled. It's set up. There's a lot of verbs in this passage about things being raised up. You ever seen the, you know, the construction of a big tent? This is a tent, right? What happens when you get a tent? You know, you spread it out and then you raise it up. That's what happens in this. It's all assembled together. And then each part of it, Moses goes around and like anoints each part of it with oil. Then he brings Aaron, the high priest, who's going to be the sort of the main figure ministering in this tabernacle and, they, and prepares him. And then at the very end, the last paragraph, almost the last verse, a cloud descends upon the building and the glory of the Lord fills it. How does this fit into the story? How does this ending shape everything that's come before it? How does what come before it lead to this ending? Well, for a second, let's, let's zoom out a bit for a moment. and we, we Kind of get, a, get a, a, a broader view. Let's talk about Exodus in the context of of the entire Pentateuch. Okay, the first five books of the Bible are often called the Pentateuch because they were, they were kind of written all at once as like one sort of unit. They, they hang together. Other books came later, but the Pentateuch was, is the first thing that was written. Okay, if we, if we want to look, like walk through the Pentateuch just in very broad terms, Genesis is all the history of, of uh, God's interaction with his people that, that prepares for this nation in slavery, where the, where, the, where the book of Exodus opens, right, with, with Israel in slavery. 
Genesis is all the history that leads into that, with a particular focus on the special relationship that God forms with Abraham, who's the father of the Israelites. Now, what comes next in the book of Leviticus sort of builds on this last thing that happens. Okay, God's presence has descended upon the tabernacle, and now God is dwelling in their midst. This is like an earth-shattering, unprecedented event that has consequences. Leviticus deals with those consequences. How can this uh, you know, God presence in their midst be approached? How can it be worshipped? Who may enter? When can they enter? What's required before you can come near? So it's a book about holiness and purity. Okay? Numbers, then, begins again the narrative of the book. So things start to happen again in Numbers. Right? Exodus, most of Exodus, all of Leviticus, uh, Israel just camped out at Mount Sinai. In Numbers, they leave. Numbers continues the narrative from Mount Sinai till they are on the, at the, the, the border, the cusp of entering into the promised land with a very uh, long interlude in the middle. There's actually, do you know there's a 40-year time jump in the middle of the book of Numbers? It just is like one chapter and then boom, 40 years later. Right? So there's a, a very long uh, period of time actually that's covered in the book of Numbers, but it takes the narrative. The, the heart of it is it's from Mount Sinai to the cusp of entering the promised land. And then Deuteronomy is, is, is a, a speech. It's a, it's a charge. It's a final sort of statement by Moses in which he, he reiterates everything that's happened in, this, in the whole Pentateuch, the whole covenant. He delivers it in his, like, it's like his final will and testament uh, spoken to the nation as they're about to enter the promised land. And then Moses dies. That's the end. That's the end of the Pentateuch. Okay, now, these books, we shouldn't see Exodus alone, but as like a part of this whole thing. All right? It's, it, it, you know, it was written all at the same time. It was collected together as a single literary unit. It was conceived of that way as the people are prepared to enter the promised land. Uh, it was um, almost certainly, uh, most of it was written by Moses, who had been uniquely prepared by God to write the Pentateuch. Remember, Moses, educated in Egypt, a literate man, prepared for, uh, you know, intellectually for the writing of this book. Now, immediately afterward, it's probably edited. Uh, other content is added in by Joshua. We know that because in Deuteronomy, there's an account of Moses' death, so he probably didn't, you know, write that himself, I imagine. There's also the moment where he says that Moses is the most humble man on earth. I think that was probably an editorial added by someone else. Um, uh, and then, but, but really, like this book is assembled, and it's, it's a gift to Israel as they're prepared to enter the promised land. It's a record of the treaty that they've made with God. It's a it itself is the written covenant between God and man. And though it's, it's, it undergoes changes over the next several hundred years, as the language is updated, it's written, uh, the alphabet of the Hebrews changes, so it's rewritten in a new alphabet, and it probably gets into the final form, the form that we have today in the seventh century during the reign of King Josiah. Okay, but the, the big point of this is, I tend to get lost sometimes in the, these kind of history things, but the, the main point of this is, is these books, including Exodus, 
They are the revelation of the God that dwells with them. It's a gift to them that they are to maintain and refer back to. It's their history. Their relationship with God is, is like recorded there and shaped by what's in it. And so what is the role that Exodus plays within this larger group? What is Exodus about? Exodus is really the center, the heart of the Pentateuch. The most important things happen here. Exodus is, how can I describe it? Exodus is about the creation of the people of God. Okay, Exodus is a foreshadowing. Exodus is going to like, um, shape how God's people all the way down to today, how they understand the nature of their relationship with God. It's all set here. The events of it echo all throughout the history of God's people. In Exodus, like a way of thinking about our relationship with God is given to us. In the history of the, in the, history of the Israelites, you know, we see the foreshadowing of our own history with God. Exodus is a book with a beginning and a middle and an end. Now, in, in the book of Hosea, I'm going to quote Hosea to you. This is a very important passage that uh, is quoted by both Peter and Paul in the New Testament. So very very important idea here in the book of Hosea. This is God speaking. He says, I will have mercy on no mercy, I will say to not my people, just kind of picture this person, this is this person, their name is not my people, okay? So I will say to this person, not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. Paul quotes this in Romans. Peter quotes it in 1 Peter. The context of both quotations is similar. It is the description of God's actions in approaching a people that are not his and sort of creating out of nothing a nation, a people that belong to him, a people that are in covenant relationship with him. He speaks words over them. He says, you are my people. And this, this thing that was formerly not his people becomes, by the act of speaking, God summons forth what he says. Think of in creation, when God says, let there be light. He doesn't say, let there be light, and then go, okay, now time to light a fire, right? Let there be light, and there was light. God pursues, discovers a people and says to them, you are my people. He, he forms a nation. This is the work of God from beginning of history to the end. That is what God does in Exodus. We could see him do it. So the story, the, the, the story of Exodus has one hero, one central figure. The prominence of Moses in this story is like a fake out. It's a misdirection. If you read the mythologies of the ancient world, the heroes of them are these sort of men that become demigods. Men being raised up into something. Gilgamesh, Enkidu, these are the heroes of the ancient world. And in their stories, 
men are the center. But in the story of Exodus, Moses occupies this sort of narrative center in order to contrast the story with these other stories, to show that actually, what does Moses actually do in this book? He doesn't do anything. Right? He sticks his staff in water once or twice. He tries to get out of his job. When Moses, when Moses is called, what is his response? Don't send me. It's so annoying. Moses is so annoying that God is finally like, you're going. <laughs> Stop like arguing with me. I'm going to send you. Moses is supposed to be. You, you, if, you're, if you're reading the mythology of the ancient world, you would expect here that Moses is the central character. But the one that acts, the one that does things, the one that accomplishes things in the book of Exodus is not Moses. It's Yahweh. Every actual event, every deed of heroism, every work of power, Moses stands and observes it with the rest of the Israelites. He might often be sort of the means by which it is communicated but God is the one that acts. So what are the events of Exodus? What happens in this book? There are three main events. One occurs in the, in the beginning, one occupies the middle, and then one happens here in the last chapter. Completes the story. First, of course, the famous part, the first thing that happens in the book of Exodus, the main event and that first part is the redemption of Israel from slavery. God finds, discovers an enslaved people, a helpless people. And he liberates them. He breaks the chains of their slavery. Israel is brought forth without even raising a sword, right? They're brought out of Egypt without shedding a drop of Egyptian blood. They don't do it. They're passive in their own liberation. They plunder Egypt without ever threatening any violence to the nation at all. God does it. God acts. God terrifies the Egyptians. And finally, he destroys their armies in the waters of the Red Sea. It's a public act intended to be seen by all the nations of the world and recorded and remembered throughout all of history. God liberates and enslaves people. Second, the second event in the book of Exodus is the act of covenant making. The moment, the moment in which not my people becomes my people. If God first liberates, then by taking the people to Mount Sinai, descending upon it in cloud and thunder and lightning, and then speaking to them, saying, let's make a treaty. Let's be in relationship. Let's make a covenant together. You will be my people. I will be your God. That's the second great act. It's really sort of the, the center of the book. Most of the book is occupied with this treaty and its implications. <clears throat> And then third, and finally, the final act of God, which I, really, if you want to understand this book, these are the three actions to remember. 
liberation of a people that are enslaved, covenant making, where not my people becomes you are my people. And then third, there is the descent of the cloud upon the tabernacle in the midst of the nation of Israel. This moment at the end of the book where God descends in a cloud upon the tabernacle and dwells there. So, I've kind of said this little thing that's in the last paragraph, made this bold claim, right? This is one of the three most important events in Exodus. Something that kind of brings to completion the entire story of Exodus. What makes it so significant? What makes it so significant? Well, keep in mind the, the movements of this book. Israel, what, what do they undergo as the book progresses? They begin as strangers in a foreign land, distant from the God of their fathers, a part of an empire with its own gods and religion. So the first movement of this book is to take them out of that slavery, brought to the mountain. When they're on the mountain, they're, when they're confronted with the presence of Yahweh. So you can visually picture yourself in their shoes, okay? Try and... Try and uh, capture somewhat of what they experienced. I know it's a little bit beyond our comprehension or understanding what they actually saw, but the description of it is that they're, they're standing at like the foot of this mountain and all of a sudden this cloud descends on it and there's lightning coming from it and trumpet blasts and thunder. The voice of God comes forth from this cloud that's descended on the nation. They're terrified. It's dangerous. Anyone who sets foot on the mountain must die. No one can approach. They are afraid. The second movement that needs to happen here, from slavery to this covenant making, right, is that that the presence of God needs to go from something that is terrifying, that cannot be approached, to something that can dwell in their midst, right? That is the effect of, of the covenant. When, when God makes this covenant with them, he promises, I will dwell with you, I will go with you, I will be with you. And the, that's why the first thing after this covenant is sealed in Exodus 24, the first thing that must be done is a place must be constructed where God's presence can be, where God can dwell with them. That's the purpose of the building of this tabernacle. And when God descends, it's a a parallel, right? The first descent that they see is God descending upon the mountain in terror. And then here at the end, through the covenant that God has made, through the unveiling of his character as the merciful God, abundant in compassion and grace, the cloud descends on the tabernacle in their midst. And God's presence is with them. There's still danger now. Okay, there's still, there's still distance, right? It's not quite, you know, it's still kind of a scary thing that God's presence dwells in their midst. In fact, in, in the next book in Leviticus, God gives all these instructions for worshiping him and approaching his tent. And then two of Aaron's sons, like, ignore these instructions. And they kind of approach God's tent on their own and fire comes out of it and kills them. All right, so it's not entirely safe yet, the presence of God. There's still terror and fear there, but it's not the terror and fear of Mount Sinai and God on the mountain. The covenant has reconciled something. 
Something new has come into the world. A people has been formed. People that belong to God, and he belongs to them and is dwelling with them. Now, the grand narrative of Exodus, where it begins to where it ends, this shapes how we understand God's interactions with his people throughout all history. You see that, that first act in which God summons and liberates a people. God is not yet done doing that. The great work of creation, liberation from slavery, summoning him to himself, this is a work that continues to this day in every corner of our globe, all over the world. The voice of God is going out and saying to not my people, you are my people. God proclaiming mercy on the nations. Summoning them, summoning them into his community. This, after all, this is the essential work of the church. This is why, actually, history continues. This is why the earth still exists. Because God's work of summoning not my people and making them his people is not yet complete. Okay, so there's two passages I want to... First, I want, I want to draw a parallel with the raising up of the tabernacle and then a parallel with the cloud descending. These are parallels that we see in the New Testament, okay? So our understanding of what Christ has done, the covenant that is made with him in his death and resurrection, our understanding of it is shaped by what we see in Exodus 40. It's shaped by how Exodus 40 shapes the whole story of Exodus. Okay, so first, the setting up of the tabernacle. In 1 Peter, Peter says this. This is 1 Peter 2.5. He says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, when, when Israel had at last settled the promised land, when its borders had finally been secured by King David, one of the first things that is done is that all the articles of the tabernacle are brought into their new capital city in Jerusalem and a new house is built. No longer a tent, but a house. A permanent place. And when this, when this is dedicated, again, the glory of God descends upon the building. But now, in the age of the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, a new type of construction has been undergone. As Moses and the nation built the tabernacle of God, so a new tabernacle is being built. And the material of its construction are not all the gold and silver and plundered goods from the nation of Israel, but it is constructed from living stones. The people of God. They themselves constitute the tabernacle. You are the material of the house of God in which he dwells. God's people, not this building. We love the chapel building, right? This building is not a replacement for the tabernacle. It's not the new dwelling place of God. The living stones are built together. You, me, in the new covenant, sealed in the blood of Jesus, there is that increased degree of intimacy. The tabernacle is no longer a place of danger, but it's a place where we dwell permanently. And God doesn't just occupy a house, but he indwells a people. 
Spirit of God is in us. Okay, this is, we could see this in the passage that, actually this passage kind of closely parallels Exodus, the end of Exodus 40. Even some of the language that's used. This is Acts 2, 1 through 3. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Right? This is immediately after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. The movements of Exodus are present here. What lies behind this passage is that the great work of liberation has been accomplished in what Jesus Christ does. The work of power akin to the humbling of Egypt. right? Satan and sin overthrown. The powers of the world that held men in slavery broken, defeated. People of God are freed. And now being freed, they enter into covenant with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But instead of building a new dwelling place in their midst, they are instructed by Jesus to assemble together, to, to, to pray together and to wait. And as they are praying and waiting, something happens akin to what happens in Exodus 40. Right? The cloud comes down upon them. The tongues of fire rest upon their head. The Spirit of God, the glory of the Lord, fills not a building, but a people. This is the beginning, the beginning of the church of God. A parallel to Exodus 40. So we can see that Exodus provides a model for us. A living history which corresponds to our own. And so we can proclaim to ourselves certain truths. Let's proclaim truths, truths to ourselves this morning. I don't know why I said that with a Scottish accent. Truths. <laughs> Let's proclaim truths to ourselves this morning. I did it again. Truths to know and to live by and to hold close to our heart. Essential to our faith. Okay, first, let me proclaim this to you. This is true. You are free. You are liberated. The powers which enslaved you are shattered for all time. The powers of sin and Satan and the world are no longer your masters. This must be proclaimed again and again and again because as long as we live in this world, those, the, the powers are like present with us. Right? You are no longer a slave, but the tug of your former slavery might still be felt in your heart. To say you're not a slave does not mean that you will never sin again, never fail again, or even that you will never feel like you're almost under the power of these things from which you've been liberated. But it does mean that something decisive has happened. God has come and broken the chain, and it cannot be reforged again. In the people of God, there dwells the presence of God, and hence the power of God. And that power is the power of God. Of liberation. Second, let me proclaim to you that in our midst, as we have assembled together in the name of Jesus, as covenant members who eat and drink the covenant meal together, as those born again, that the Spirit of God is in us and with us. That we have access and intimacy that is total and complete. 
John says, perfect love drives out fear. The revelation of perfect love in the cross of Jesus Christ has driven, driven out the fear that Israel felt at the presence of God. God may be approached by, at any time by any member of the covenant. Do you know and enjoy this intimacy? Do you experience it as we worship together? The reality, the power, and the presence of the Holy Spirit present with you at every moment, indwelling in you. The power, that is like the power that is exerted when the Spirit raises Jesus from the dead. Resurrection power. And third, here's another truth. This truth is sort of like a charge. The work of liberation is unfinished. The way of liberation is in the voice of God proclaiming, you are my people and I am your God. The voice of invitation, it says be liberated from the chains of your sin. And how will this voice be heard unless we speak it? We are the appointed ones to carry the voice of God to the world. Jesus came to proclaim freedom for the captives, to overcome the power of the oppressor. Having found in him that liberation, the eternal promises of life with him, shall we not as a church proclaim it to the world? Thank you for listening to the weekly teaching podcast of the chapel at Pasadena. We are a church on a mission to revive believers, reach friends, and reflect Christ. If you would like more information about our church, visit www.chapelpasadena.com or email us at info at chapelpasadena.com.